I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast, where we are peeling back the layers of our urbanized, industrialized, technologized modern life to get to the core of how we were meant to live as human beings. I'm Jennifer Grayson. We've got a great and somewhat controversial guest for you today, Erica Komazar, who is the author of a book that came out last year and got a lot of attention, not all of which was positive, although I certainly believe that no revolutionary idea comes without opposition. The book is called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And in it, if you haven't heard of the book yet, she draws attention to something we're intensely interested in on this podcast here, which is all the ways that we modern humans have disconnected from not only our prior human existence, but also our own inherent biology. And in the case of Erica's book, she explores the fact that for most of human history, it was just taken as a fact of our human biology that babies need to be close to their mothers for the first few years of life in order to be fed, uh, in order to be protected. You know, for most of our history, you could just plop a baby on the ground in the middle of the tundra or on a farm. Um, and that we have strayed so far from that essential physical relationship between a mother and a young child, really in only the past few decades, to the point that you could say that we are in the midst, and I'm not trying to be grandiose here, but this is the reality. I mean, we are in the midst of a biological and societal experiment in child rearing unprecedented in the history of humankind. I mean, 27% of American women go back to work two weeks after giving birth. 70% of babies under the age of one are regularly cared for by someone other than their own parents. This is all not without consequences for our children's emotional health, our own health. And as Erica argues, we're really only just starting to see the outcome of all this. So look, you know, I realize that talking about this issue is upsetting for a lot of people. And there's a lot of guilt too, because I know that some of you listening may have decided or are deciding to go back to work or felt that they had to go back to work immediately after having children. And honestly, I mean, after reading Erica's book, I realized that even though I'm a freelancer who works from home, even I haven't been there all the time in the way that I wish I had been in retrospect. But the bottom line is, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about leading up to the Women's March this past weekend. Uh, I was there in Los Angeles yesterday. I've been thinking about that we women and mothers of my generation and the generations after me, uh, which is probably the people listening right now, all of you listening right now, we've been taught that we can do everything, you know, that we can have a career and not just a career, but the most fascinating career of our wildest dreams and that we can explore the world and that we can also have children. But what no one is really talking about and that you'll hear Erica talk about in this interview is that we're doing all of that or we're trying to do that, I should say in the confines of a world that does not value the work of mothers, that is a patriarchal society, the legacy of which is thousands of years old. 
and that we are trying to squeeze ourselves and raising our children into this world, giving up our children for work environments that don't value mothers, uh, letting other people raise our children. Oftentimes, and those people who are hired to raise our children often have to give up their own children themselves so they can have those jobs and earn a living. And then the result is we all just blame ourselves and each other for all the emotion that this all drums up instead of working together to restructure society itself and to create a society. And I was thinking about this as I was seeing thousands and thousands of women and also men marching yesterday. We want to create a society that would honor the biological fact that mothers need to be close to their babies instead of trying to convince us all that we can somehow rise above our biology and that all of all of this doesn't matter. Because as you're going to hear today, it does. So I want to urge you to listen to Erica and to read her book, because as is the case with a lot of controversial books, the controversy is hyped up a lot in the media, and they're not actually all that controversial once you read them and are willing to read them with an open mind to come from a place that you're reading a book or you're listening to an interview, not because you want to shut it down, but because you want to actually learn something new and learn something from someone who might actually have a lot of wisdom and a lot of life experience to share on the topic, which Erica does. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you think it's really thought-provoking, and I'm really, really interested to hear what you think. So feel free to reach out to me either by email, that's info at jennifergrayson.com, or on Instagram at at jennifergrayson1. That's the only social media platform that I am on. So I'm really interested to know what you think. Um, that's it for me. <laughs> I'll be back next Monday with a new episode. Erica Komisar is a clinical social worker, psychoanalyst, and parent guidance expert who has been in private practice in New York City for the last 25 years. A graduate of Georgetown and Columbia Universities and the New York Freudian Society, she is a psychological consultant bringing parenting and work-life workshops to clinics, schools, corporations, and childcare settings, including the Garden House School, Goldman Sachs, Shearman and Sterling, and the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue Early Childhood Center. She lives in New York City with her husband, optometrist and social entrepreneur, Dr. Jordan Casalow, and their three teenage children. And most importantly, why she's here, although probably not most important since <laughs> having children is very important, as we will talk mm -hmm. about. She is the author of a must-read new book that has sparked quite a lot of controversy in the media since coming out last year, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Erica, thank you for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. How many times has someone used that line now when introducing you? <laughs> many. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, it's a shame I'm not the first. Um, well, I just want to thank you so much. I, you've written such an important book. And I, one of the things that really interested me was something you said right off the bat in your intro to the book, which is that 10 years ago, you had the idea to write this book, but that you put it off because focusing on that would have taken you away from your children. Was that a hard decision for you at the time? Were you worried about well, someone else coming up with the idea and writing this book before you had the chance? Because I know that as a writer... I sort of face that all the time. So, you know, I, I believe everyone's voice is unique. And maybe that's part of the issue is that um, women lack a certain amount of confidence that if they get off some kind of linear track or don't get on a linear track or don't get on the, the train that they uh, feel an urgency to get on, meaning if they delay um, some of their career ambitions, that 
that their careers will be over. And, and the reality is that we're going to live very long lives today. And we can do many, many things in life. We can even do everything in life. We just can't do it all at the same time. So for me, it was not such a difficult decision because, again, you know, what I have devoted my life to is, is mental health. And, you know, it is, um, it, it's, it's very critical, this first three years of development. Um, and even, you know, going forward, I mean, I really put it off until my children were teenagers, this book, because I knew it would consume a lot of my time. So it wasn't a difficult decision for me, but I understand why it's a difficult decision for many women. Right. And so, and why write it now? Has anything changed dramatically in the past 10 years since you first came up with the idea? So there was an urgency then, and there's even more of an urgency now. So I've been in practice for about 30 years, and I've seen this increase in mental disorders in younger and younger children being diagnosed and medicated um, for disorders like depression and anxiety and ADHD and behavioral problems. Um, and I was seeing an increase in this diagnosis and labeling of children. And so I saw it 30 years ago uh, as I was working in clinics. And then as I became a private practitioner, I just saw this incredible increase in uh, in this, you know, sort of the increase in mental disorders in children. So it, it, I did see the increase, but I, I put it off because of my own personal reasons. Right. And and your, those personal reasons being that you just wanted to be there for your children? Exactly. I mean, my children were young and you really only get one shot um, at, at being with your children when they're very young. And it passes very quickly. And, I, you know, I would say, if, if as a woman you have regrets at the end of your life, your regrets are, are never usually that you uh, didn't make enough money or get the title with your work, but many, many women have regrets about not spending enough time with their children. So uh, again, there has been this incredible increase over the past 30 years. Yeah, it's interesting that you you mentioned that you don't get that time back because that's exactly what that's what my own mom always said to me, you know. And, and yeah. I was very hesitant. I knew uh, mentally that I wanted to be a mother, but I did feel that pressure. Like I hadn't reached where I wanted to yet in my career, and um, you know, I was worried about having children. And my mom said, you know, you just don't get that time back, and you also change your view of the world once you have children anyway. And then things aren't as important as you thought they were, you know, the the older things. Or different things are important. So, it, you know, if if having children goes the way that it's meant to go, then it's a transformative experience. And that means that different things are important to you. And that can actually help with work because you end up finding new directions that you might never have found if you had gotten back on that same linear track. Right. So and because our own moms are so important in kind of setting that precedent, was can I ask you, was your own mom there? What was your own experience in childhood? So my own mother was there until I was five, and then she went to help my father in his business. And, um, and you know, but she was uh, a stay-at-home mom for the first five years. And that foundation, in spite of all of life's challenges, um, did very good things for me. And I know and I can see that it does very good things for my children and, and, and with my patients, very good things for their children. So what kinds of things are you talking about? Can you put that in more concrete terms? Sure. Well, you know, emotional security. And the research shows that the first three years is what we call the critical period of brain development, when the right or social emotional part of the brain is developing. And that really is the center of emotional security or the center of of one's 
developing self, if you will. So when we talk about self-esteem, that's what we're talking about, um, is basically having an emotionally secure center. Um, you know, it also, uh, what mothers are critical for two very important things in those first three years. One is they regulate children's emotions from moment to moment in the first three years. And it's after that three-year period that children can then more or less regulate their own emotions. But we're not born as human beings with the ability to regulate our emotions. It's through our mothers regulating our emotions, meaning keeping our emotions going from too high, not too high and not too low, and bringing us back to what we call emotional homeostasis. So every time a mother soothes a baby who's in distress, she's basically comforting and soothing that baby, but bringing that baby back to a, a kind of emotional homeostasis. And then a mother also buffers a child from stress. So what we know now is that children are born much more neurologically fragile than we've ever known before. Meaning, you know, like almost like a kangaroo or a marsupial kind of animal that really children are born nine months, some say 18 months too early from a neurological perspective, and that mothers are actually the central nervous system to babies in the first three years and up to, in, particularly in the first year and up to the first three years. And so essentially, um, mothers protect babies from stress. It's only after that three-year period that babies can then be resilient to stress. Again, not something we're born with, but something we gain from the protection our mothers give us in the first three years. One would say, at least for the first year, in many parts of the world, mothers wear their babies to protect them from stress. And, um, and one researcher in Holland that um, I respect very much talked about how, in fact, in the rest of the world, babies cry much less than they do in America and in the Western world because mothers uh, are proximate or physically close to babies in the first year. Yeah. One of the other interesting things I found in your book was when you talked about how uh, mothers in other countries are also less likely to feel pressure to constantly entertain their babies. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Um, I yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it is true. This this researcher basically went around the world and she videotaped mothers in, in many different parts of the world, at least 20 countries around the world. Um, and what she found is that uh, mothers in other parts of the world were much calmer and, and connected to their babies in a different way, where they didn't have to constantly stimulate and entertain the babies. And suggested to me that um, in America, she had never seen such a kind of a need for mothers to entertain their babies every single minute and stimulate their babies, but really to be reassured by their babies that they're doing a good job. Because that's what we do when we're constantly needing to stimulate babies in a playful way. We're really wanting them to smile at us and reassure us. So the mothers themselves are needing so much reassurance. Right. Do you see, I mean, do you see that as an extension of I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the guilt that that American mothers are facing, that they're not there, so they're somehow overcompensating? It, it can be. It can also have to do with conflicts and ambivalence about mothering. So, you know, we assume that just because a mother is a stay-at-home mother, she's, you know, doing all the right things. And the truth is that there are many stay-at-home mothers and mothers who go to work who come home and feel quite ambivalent about mothering. I mean, that's, that's what's surprising, too, is that there's such an increase, uh, as well as an increase in mental disorders in children, there's also an increase in postpartum depression in mothers. So, and there 
is a connection between the two, meaning a postpartumly depressed mother um, cannot in a healthy way attach to her baby. And so, you know, we have a kind of, um, I'll call it ambivalence, but, uh, you know, you could say a lot of conflict about mothering and being a mother and being interested in being a mother. You know, there's a lot of boredom with mothering. And so mothers will overcompensate for that by kind of getting into a high-pitched need to stimulate. You know, can we talk more about why you landed on three years as the pivotal number? I'm kind of interested just from, just because we were talking about other societies and how, you know, mothers wear their babies for much longer. And I've known from my own research that a lot of times children will be worn up until the age of four or five, even longer, they're Mm -hmm. nursed for longer. And so I'm wondering, did you know, what kind of, did you do any anthropological research when writing this book? Mm -hmm. And what was the three years based on specifically? So the research that I used really was primarily um, attachment research and epigenetics research and and neuroscience research um, and some sociological research as well. There are social anthropologists that I've used their research. But the reason for the three-year period, uh, the critical brain development period, is it's based, it's based on neuroscience because by the end of three years, 85% of a child's right brain is developed, meaning their brain almost looks like that of an adult. And so it's only through this period that you have as great an influence on these very important abilities and functions for the rest of their lives. So what we say is in that three-year period, whatever you do or don't do with your child can cast a long shadow uh, for the rest of their lives. Because again, 85% of that development occurs in the first three years. Yeah, I, I can imagine there are a lot of moms listening to this now. I don't know about our audience so much because I think uh, our audience really is the audience for your book in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. But there are a lot of moms who hear that and they think, oh my God, like everything I do in the first three years, um, that's a lot of weight. And I, I'm i just curious how you, have you, do you feel like you've had to temper your message as you've been talking about your book in the media? I mean, I know I saw what happened on Good Morning America when mm-hmm. um, Lara Spencer was interviewing you and you could tell when you started talking about the research that led to this book and the increase in ADHD and depression and all of these mental issues. And she said, well, you know, well, some of us had to work uh, like I had to work. I wish I could have been there or something like that. And you can see how flustered, if not angry, people get. And I'm, I'm wondering how you have you had to temper your message and how are you talking about this to all different types of people who may be kind of overwhelmed by what you're saying? Well, I mean, I tell the truth, but the truth can also be tempered with hope. And the hope is that, you know, and I'm writing another book now based on the second critical window of brain development, which is adolescence, which we now know is much longer than we originally thought. It starts earlier and ends later. It starts at nine and ends at about, some say 25. I think it's closer to 30. Wow. So, so you know, if we understand that you have other chances as a mother, if you miss the first opportunity, which is the first three years, but, you know, the first three years is the foundation for adolescence, meaning if the first three years goes well, then adolescence tends to go better. Um, and, adolescents tend to have fewer conflicts and be able to resolve those conflicts more easily when they've had a good foundation in the first three years. But that doesn't mean that you should lose all hope if you haven't been uh, or couldn't be as available in the first three years. Yeah. So it's so interesting because I think so much of what you're saying now and what you talk about in the book is something that we just 
innately understood as human beings for most of our human existence. Like, I, what's the reaction been like from people in other countries? Well, you know, again, I think it promotes, it fosters defensiveness in in many people, uh, men and women, because, and and again, defensiveness is is a feeling of conflict. It's a feeling of guilt. And, and, you know, we have to be careful not to want to rid ourselves so quickly of guilty feelings and even defensive feelings, because usually they indicate we're in conflict. And it's always best to look at our conflicts. And this is speaking as a psychoanalyst now. Um, if you just brush your conflicts under the rug, you tend not to make the best decisions in life. And you tend not to ever resolve those conflicts, or they erupt symptomatically in in very unhealthy ways. And so it's always best to look at our conflicts because we tend to resolve them and then we tend to make better decisions. So things like defensiveness, which I have seen in other countries. I I was in England um, uh, speaking recently and did some press and um, am really trying to promote the book there. And, you know, everywhere. I mean, in Europe, uh, in Australia, they had a very defensive reaction, many people, um, because feminism and gender, uh, I say gender neutrality, but gender equality is a very big thing in Australia. Um, So yes, I think there is a universal, if you will, defensiveness about this idea that mothers are critical to babies, which is really not a political issue as it's been made out to be, but is really just a scientific, humane idea. Yeah. So what are we talking about Western societies? I mean, do you see this big divide between Westernized societies and or I should say maybe developed countries and non-developed countries? Or is this something pervasive now? Well, I was in South Africa two years ago when I was writing the book and I was interviewing women in South Africa and uh, I interviewed older women and some younger women. And what was interesting is that both the younger women and the older women who had more perspective because they had lived through a change socially in their country um, said that, you know, their country was becoming much more like our country. And that wasn't a good thing um, in terms of them having daycare uh, and in terms of mothers going out to work and not raising their very, very young children, in terms of people moving away from their families to get jobs so they didn't have extended family to help them. And so they said, you know, all the bad habits and the things that are going wrong in your culture are now invading our culture, which I thought was really interesting and sad. Yeah, it is that. What do you think is at the root of it all? You know, I think one thing I can say is an overemphasis on self-sufficiency and independence. You know, we as a society overvalue independence and self-sufficiency. And that means that when we're having children, we don't think, we don't plan and say, I should live near a family member, hopefully one I get along with, but, um, you know, whether it's a mother or a mother-in-law right. or a, or an aunt or a sister who's like an aunt to your children or is an aunt to your children or, um, or a best friend who is raising children to live next door to your best friend who is like your extended family, that we really don't think about... Uh, the fact that we're not meant to be isolated or to raise children in an isolated fashion. We're meant to raise children in an extended family, what we call alloparental structure, which is with lots of our real kinship family around and extended family who are like family, um, who will be in our children's lives forever. 
And in fact, we've perverted the idea of alloparenting in our culture, because if, if you hear there's sociologists and economists who use the idea that, well, in other countries, there are multiple attachment figures and they do something called alloparenting, which is anybody can watch the baby, which is not true, um, because in other cultures where they still really practice alloparenting, what it means is that the mother is always physically proximate, physically near the baby. So yes, the baby goes to the grandmother and to the aunt and to the dad and to the grandfather when the baby is in a playful mood. But when the baby is in distress, the baby still comes back to the mother. And so that isn't what we do here. We leave our babies for long periods of time when they're really very, very little um, and need us dramatically and critically, um, sometimes for eight, 10 hours a day. And that is not alloparenting. So one thing is the overemphasis on self-sufficiency and independence, uh, moving away from our families, not moving near our families when we have children. And then the overemphasis on professional achievement and materialism instead of relationships, right? I mean, that really is when she was talking about what what the Western world was doing to her world when I was in South Africa. She was talking about that they used to value relationships over these other things. Um, so we overvalue. It's not that professional achievement and material success isn't important, but you have a long life to achieve those things, and you have a very short window to achieve this. Yeah, it's so interesting you mentioned that because I've known so many moms who, when they were pregnant or even right after they had their first child, said, you know, I know I, I really would love to stay at home, but I, if we could just save up for the house now, you know, I've got this high paying job. If like I could just get through the next few years and save up the money for the big house, then like, then maybe I'll stop working less. And it's, you know, what I'll just ask you, like, what would you say to a mom who's struggling with that decision? Because I've known so many and it's hard to say, you know, like, look, you don't get that time back. And some people do think that they can do it all. Um, and there is such an emphasis on like achieving that big house or achieving the things that you think you will need so that you can have a stable family. Well, I, I'm hoping that my book will, um, at least be a drop in a big ocean um, to make an influence, to make some dent because of the research. I mean, again, the research is not mine. I'm a collector of research. And that means that there's hundreds of pieces of research that went into the it went into this book. I mean, I basically looked at uh, as much research as I could get my hands on for the last 13 years. Um, and and it's that that I hope influences mothers because sometimes they need to see the evidence of, of you know, the importance of these three years and what, what may happen uh, if they don't take it seriously. And that, you know, yes, in the moment, we also feel very, how should I say, immediate gratification of wanting to have houses and cars and good jobs and, and status in the moment. Um, but we forget that... Um, you know, a lot of those things are fleeting, but the relationship with your child is something that uh, is going to last forever. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I think I think it's important too, to talk about sacrifice a little bit, because I think, you know, you talk about this in your book that a lot of new parents now, a lot of this generation doesn't think that anything will change when they mm -hmm. become parents. So can you talk about that idea that a little bit more about how the sacrifice of parenting and some of the hard decisions that you do have to make, that there are hard decisions? 
I mean, I think that we don't educate um, young people before they have children as to the realities of having children. Because, you know, the reality is you don't need to have children to have a happy life. You can, you know, it's, it isn't the 1950s where our status as women depended on having children. It no longer depends on us having children. In fact, one would say our status in society now depends on having a good job and making a lot of money. Um, and, and, you know, but at some point we were forced to have children to be part of society. That no longer is the case. And what that means is it's freed up women to say, maybe I don't want children right? I want to have a linear career. I want to have loving friendships. I want to be creative in other ways, but I don't want children because I can't make the sacrifices that it requires. But first we have to tell women realistically how much sacrifice is required to have a healthy child. Um, you know, it, it's, it's hard work. You don't sleep for five years, not six <laughs> Minimum. months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and the reason that it's so hard is because it's not until children come out of what we call the Oedipal period, which is about six years old in terms of development, that they really can internalize rules and structure, you know. And so you say in the first three years, they're um, really uh, very, very fragile. And then in the next three years, they're battling with internalizing rules. So you'd say the first six years are really, really challenging as a mother, very rewarding and lots of love, but very challenging and not much sleep. Um, and, you know, if we tell women realistically what's involved, uh, maybe it gets women to really think about what they want. And if they do want children to, to embrace realistic expectations of what it's going to take. Right, right. And let's say, let's say, you know, there are women who read your book, they are 100% on board with what you're saying, they want to be there. But they also, you know, as women are having children later and later, there comes a point where if you leave the workforce, it's much, much harder to get back in at a much more advanced age. And so what do you suggest to moms who want to, you know, still work on their careers, but be also be there for their children? Is there is there some sort of middle solution? Or, you know, what did you do? Because obviously, you were working on the research for this book, you had a successful practice. And so how did you manage it in the day to day? So I've been asked by many, many people who, uh, including the, the executive director of WERK, uh, W-E-R-K, which is a really interesting organization, which helps women to, supports women to work part-time and flexibly. Um, the idea really is as women um, to find more entrepreneurial paths for ourselves, even within companies, meaning uh, as, as mothers, we need much more control and flexibility. And that isn't something that we go into job interviews as mothers asking for. And it, yet it's what we really essentially need as mothers. So, you know, I believe in mothers' uh, ability to find different paths because of our creativity, um, because of our uh, self-starting and initiation, because of all the skills it takes to be a good mother. We also have skills that mean we can be amazing entrepreneurs and find creative problem-solving ways to find work. Um, so I encourage women to be entrepreneurs when they're raising children. And if they do work in companies, to be upfront when they go on a job interview, that what they're looking for is flexibility and control, and that's critical to them. 
And what do you, what about for mothers and also, you know, for fathers considering financial decisions and that, um, you know, who feel like they financially have to work or who really do financially have to work? I mean, there are a lot of moms in this country who are working three jobs or who are single parents or the sole breadwinner. And, and, you know, not everyone, unfortunately. Well, I'll let you answer that question. So a part of the population um, really has to work. And in the book, I I leave room for that because, you know, when you you really have to work um, and not just feel you have to work. So we can perceive that we have to work. We either have to work because we would be bored and unhappy or we have to work because we've created a lifestyle that we have to sustain um, and we feel we have to work, which is quite different than really having to work because really having to work is not being able to feed your children and not being able to put a roof over their head, um, not being able to live in a safe enough neighborhood. That That is what it means to really need to work. Um, and for those women, I give lots of evidence of what they can do to be as present as possible. But interesting, the research shows that the women who really have to work, um, you'd say their work is very boring work. And what that means is their children are the most interesting parts of their lives. When they come home, they have no homework. They don't have the kinds of jobs where their work is interesting after hours. They don't have business dinners with clients. When they come home at five or six o'clock, they're with their children. So there was a, there's a woman at Columbia who did research, Sunia Luthar, on the fact that very uh, poor children from very, very socioeconomically deprived families and very... Uh, Um, affluent families, the children had the same degree of mental illness, whereas the children in the middle, meaning uh, working class, uh, middle class families, um, where parents maybe had to work, those parents came home at a reasonable hour, they focused on their children because their children were interesting and their work was boring. And the problem we have now is that women are taking on aspirational work and making their work the interesting part in the, in the years that they're raising very young children. Um, rather than, so what I say is flip it around and think of it as your work being the boring part and your children being the interesting part in the years that they're very small. That's so fascinating. And, and I think we have to talk too about the role of technology in all of this, because a lot of, a lot of jobs now with people with very, those very interesting high demand jobs. I'm here in LA. I think of a lot of, you know, women who are working in Hollywood, and they are just, even when they're home, they're not really home, because the demands of just being connected 24-7. So, you know, how does that all play in here? So, you know, technology is a distraction, and it's a distraction that you can become quite obsessive over. And so, yes, it's basically... um, taken us away from our children. You know, what I say is have a basket by the door where you leave your computer and your phone and your iPad uh, when you walk in the door, if you have children and don't pick it up again until they're asleep. And that's really hard for people um, because as you say, they're, they're obsessive over there. They're almost addicted to their technology. Um, And remember that that kind of obsessional behavior with technology is often um, a sign of either anxiety or 
or some depressive feelings that you're masking by being constantly connected to your phone. Um, so, you know, the ability to put our phone down and our computer away and really be with our children. Remember in the book, I say it's critical to be there both emotionally and physically, meaning you can be there physically and not be there emotionally, as you just stated, but you cannot be there emotionally if you're not there physically. Right. I mean, you really need you need to be there physically and emotionally as much as possible. I mean, you're not talking about helicopter parenting, right? Like, I'm thinking just I ask this because you know I think about back in the day, like when I was a kid, or even 200 years ago when there was a mom on a homestead with five kids. I mean, there's no chance that she was there emotionally, that she was present all the time, and yet we didn't see these kinds of spikes in mental illness, or maybe there were no records back then. Um, to track that kind of, uh, those kind of problems. But I guess I don't know what the question is, but <laughs> is, is it as important to be there physically as it is emotionally? It is, uh, you know, it, it's, um, again, it, it's critical. You, you can't be there emotionally if you're not there physically. And I think the idea is that you, you cannot be connected to your children 24 seven. Um, you cannot, uh, be sort of interacting with your baby every single moment, nor are you expected to. There have to be moments where the baby can pull away or you can pull away and where you return and re-engage with what we call repair. We call it rupture and repair. Every time you disengage or every time the baby disengages just to take a break and play with himself or herself and re-engages, um, it's that dance that mothers and babies do. So it's not as if we're constantly engaged with our babies. And helicopter parenting is no more present parenting than not being there at all. Because in fact, what it is, is it's anxious parenting. Remember, I said that the mother who gets in the baby's face and is very aggressive with uh, entertaining kind of, you know, the mother who makes noises and faces uh, very aggressively may actually be suffering from some anxiety and depression herself and may also feel quite ambivalent about what she's doing being a mother so yeah helicopter parenting is is anxious parenting so you want to have a balance of attachment and separation so with with helicopter parenting maybe the attachment but there's no separation so and for children to be healthy they need a balance of attachment and separation right i just i think it's important to make that distinction because i think you know, what's happened with the whole attachment parenting movement is that a, a lot of it's been misinterpreted and people think that means you can never put your baby down. That's right. That's right. It's extreme. And really, it, it doesn't focus on um, the importance of separation. So we don't want to separate from our babies prematurely, which is what's happening now. I mean, 27% of American women go back to work after two weeks, either because they have to, uh, two weeks after giving birth, either because they have to or because they desire to. Um, and that's a, that's an astounding number of babies who are left at two weeks old in America. Um, and we know that's not good for mothers and it's not good. For, it's definitely not good for babies. Um, you know, we, we have a problem. We, ha we definitely have a problem in this country. And so what has to change? Let's talk about what has to change at the at the legislative level, what has to change at the societal level and what would be. Your, how would it work in an ideal world? 
I mean, an ideal world, we would have a maternity leave policy through the government that recognizes the importance and the value of mother's work um, and recognizes how critical mothers are to the mental health of babies by, you know, supporting that with um, financial support for mothers, you know, either in the form of, um, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, I always say there can be some kind of tax in an ideal world um, on mothers from the very beginning, on women, on young women from the time they start to work. Very small amount taken out of their paycheck every week that's given it that's given back to them when they have a baby, like a social security benefit in its own fund. Um, but that we have some kind of paid maternity leave for at least a year in our country, and then the ability for mothers to work another two years flexibly and with some control. Is there a country in the world that gets it right, that's doing, or the closest to that vision? Well, I mean, the Eastern European countries, funny enough, um, because of communism, actually some of them give three years of full pay uh, to mothers. Others give, um, you know, one year of full, full pay and two years of 70% pay. Um, aside from that, I would say some of the Northern European countries, um, like Finland, has probably one of the better policies. Um, not Sweden, funny enough. Sweden has a very funny thing going on, which people idealize Sweden. They give a full year of paid maternity leave, but then they almost in a fascistic way require, um, force women to go back into the workforce after a year and put their children into daycare, institutional daycare, um, with huge numbers you know, per child, um, I mean, I mean, per caregiver. So in our country, you know, there is no good daycare is what I always say. But if you were going to look for some kind of daycare, you would want to look for no more than a three to one ratio. Whereas in Sweden, it's more like um, 24 children to three caregivers. And most days, at least one or two of the caregivers are out. So, you know, can you, uh, you imagine a woman who's been off for a year with her baby? Now she doesn't have the option or the opportunity to stay home another year or two uh, or work flexibly or part time because if she doesn't go back to work, her benefits are taken away, her health insurance is taken away, her pension is taken away. Um, so they're really forced back into the labor force and forced to put their children in institutional care. So we don't want to idealize Sweden, but I would say more like Finland, um, if we were going to look at Northern European countries. Yeah. Well, okay. So we have to talk about this because that was one of the things I was, I was surprised to read in your book that you do not, you just said there is no, what did you say? There is no good daycare option or no good daycare option. Yeah. Again, no. So yeah, I, yeah, there, I was surprised because in my, you know, and when, the way you describe it makes absolute sense because I had already I had always envisioned a possible future of like on-site childcare, especially because you know my research from writing this book about the history of breastfeeding um, that would sort of mimic alloparenting in the past, where you had caregivers on site and you could be there and check in during the day and be a somewhat present mother, almost like I don't know if you know Patagonia um, yeah. has an on-site childcare, and so I had kind of idealized this, and I've actually. Erica, I've been I'm, I've been talking about it in some of the talks I've given, and when I read what you said about childcare, about how it really isn't a substitute for alloparenting, I started, you know, second guessing all of that, and I found it fascinating. So, can we talk about? We don't have a ton of time left, but I'd love for you to just touch on what the problem is with daycare. 
Well, I mean, if I were going to design a daycare, first of all, daycare will never be the way I would design it because it would be too costly. And then one would say, well, why do daycare them? Why not have uh, a single surrogate caregiver, which is a far better option, or sharing a caregiver with another family? You really don't want to have more than a three-to-one ratio. So you're never going to find a daycare, not that I've ever heard of, which is a three-to-one ratio, three children to one caregiver. And that that caregiver is consistent, is well-trained, um, is not transient in any way, um, and is the only caregiver to that child. And you're just not going to, you're not going to find that. So most daycares are anywhere between five and eight children, usually closer to eight children to one caregiver. Imagine yourself as a caregiver to, let's, let's pick a slightly smaller number, to six newborns. Do you think you could emotionally regulate for them, buffer them from stress, and provide them with emotional security from moment to moment, um, all six of them at the same time? And that answers the question right there. There is no good daycare. Yeah. Wow. So what is the what is the solution then if, if women do decide to go back to work? Even, you know, after like, let's say they're, they decide to prioritize for the first year, and then after that, they have to go back for whatever reason, right. then what, what's the best decision? So the best would be kinship bonds, which is what we do in other countries. Well, what what we've done in other countries um, until, you know, now they're mimicking us, as I said. But, um, you know, formally, what what families did in other countries is they used grandmothers and aunts and family members as caregivers who probably you could support financially instead of giving it to a stranger. You could support your mother or your sister as a caregiver. Um, and they have a more similar investment in your child as you do rather than hiring somebody. Um, and they're going to know your child and be in your child's life as a loving individual for the rest of that child's life or you know the rest of their lives. And so that that's quite a different connection. But if you don't have family, then the next best thing would be to hire a single surrogate caregiver, a, a nanny, a babysitter. And if you can't hire one just for yourself, then share one with another family. You're still getting a better ratio uh, by sharing one caregiver with two children or three children. Um, and, you know, it's more consistent and you have more quality control. And, um, yeah, so you think about putting babies into daycare. The other thing I didn't mention is how overstimulating it is for very young neonates to be in a group environment. They're not meant to be in those kinds of group environments without being physically attached and connected to their mothers. Yeah, so important. And and we're running out of time, but I just want to encourage everyone to please read this book. It is so brilliant. And, and we've only really touched on, <laughs> we've only really brushed the surface here. So um, before we end, Erica, I just wanted to ask you, do you feel optimistic about the future? I have gotten so many amazing emails and calls and texts and, you know, from all over the world since I've written this book. And it's given me a lot of hope. Um, I, you know, I also have gotten a lot of negative feedback from people who have not read, who have not read the book, but just hear the title and hear what the book is about and get very defensive and angry. Um, but for the most part, the response to the book has been overwhelmingly positive and supportive. And, 
and loving. And therefore, I feel very hopeful about the future. Um, you know, I'm not sure that one book can do it. I think there's going to be floods of books about this topic. I even know other colleagues of mine who are writing books similar to mine, maybe not as directly coming out and saying mothers need to be there. But yeah, this is going to be the topic of the next decade. Well, I applaud you for leading the movement and for writing just such an important and, and special and really just, as, I wish I had read this book as an expecting mom. I mean, I did make the decision to stay home with my children, but you you say everything you need to say, but in such a supportive way that I just think it's such an important um, resource for moms to read. So I just want to thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for having me on your podcast. Erica, where can people stay in touch with you? Are you on social media? I am. Um, I'm at Erica Commissar CSW. That's on Twitter um, and Facebook. And um, and you can also buy the book on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And it's pretty much in bookstores all over the country. And that book is Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Erica, thank you so much for being here on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. As with every episode, the resources and links for this show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damien Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll see you next Monday with a new episode.